Welcome, fantasy book lovers, to another episode of Phantology Podcast. This is Steven, respectfully inclining my head at you, because what other greeting would you give? I'm also joined by Ryan. Hey, Steven. Good to be back on the podcast. Ryan, are you too inclining your head at our list? I too am inclining my head in a companionable way. And if we did that another 65 to 70 times, we would have about as many inclinations of heads as there are in The Echo of Things to Come, book two of the Lycanius trilogy by James Eilington. And even though I just kind of made fun of the book because of some of the verbiage that James uses, I actually really enjoyed this book. I thought it was a great improvement over book one. Book one was also solid, as you might have heard from our previous podcasts. And we are going to review book two for you, An Echo of Things to Come. So let's start by reading a book blurb from Goodreads. Uh, This beginning part will be without spoilers. So the blurb of the book from Goodreads, In the wake of the devastating attack on Alin Alon, an amnesty has been declared for all augurs, finally allowing them to emerge from hiding and openly oppose the dark forces massing against Andara. However, as Davian and his new allies hurry north towards the ever-weakening boundary, fresh horrors along their path suggest that their reprieve may have come far too late. In the capital, Weir is forced to contend with assassins and an increasingly hostile administration as he controversially assumes the mantle of North Warden, uncovering a mystery that draws into question everything commonly believed about the rebellion his father led 20 years ago. Meanwhile, Asha begins a secret investigation into the disappearance of the shadows, determined to discover not only where they went, but the origin of the vessels that created them, and ultimately a cure. And with time against him, as he races to fulfill the treacherous bargain with the Lith, Caden continues to wrestle with the impossibly heavy burdens of his past. Yet as more and more of his memories return, he begins to realize that the motivations of the two sides in this ancient war may not be as clear-cut as they first seem. So Ryan, that is our blurb. What did you think? Does this give us a good kind of intro into the book? Is this what happens? Yeah, I think it's a pretty accurate blurb from book two. Yeah, I like how it breaks up uh, our, our four main characters. They each have, they, they each go along different paths, but are all contributing towards the main plot. The, the book does a really good job of jumping back between all four of them and, and emphasizing how each of them is playing an important part, even though they obviously have different roles. Um, I thought this was one big improvement from book one. I thought the characters stood out much more. In this book, there were still some things I didn't love about the characters, but if you heard my rant against them in the first book, I really thought they were basically the same person just in different character roles, but that was not the case here in book two. I thought the author did a much better job of actually differentiating them and giving them some uh, a different flavor every time you read a different perspective. Yeah, I certainly felt like, you know, with, with many good stories, you're more invested as the story continues. And this is no exception to that rule with book two. We're more invested in each character. And I think... James Islington did a, a great job continuing that and developing each story and revealing more of the mysteries of the world and bringing more questions along with the, those revelations. Yeah, he definitely expands the world quite a bit. And let me just correct you in case James is listening. I believe it's actually Islington. When, uh, when Michael Kramer says his name in the audiobook, he says Islington. So I'm just, I'm going to go with Michael here. I'm pretty sure he actually says Islington. Ooh, uh, agree to disagree. Maybe our our, our listeners can. can I remember thinking it was Islington, and then I heard Michael Kramer say Islington. So hmm. I guess we're just gonna have to have somebody come in and tell us the right way. Yeah, go ahead and leave us some comments on Islington versus Islington, the great debate of our time. Any other improvements or expansions that you saw from book two compared to book one? Personally, I loved, uh, kind of like you said, the expansion of the plot. So in book one, he starts to introduce this idea of time travel and a, a, a interesting pass for Caden. And book two completely expands upon that. There are many scenes of flashbacks over thousands of years. 
And it's not always in chronological order. So you're jumping back and forth all the time trying to put the pieces together. I thought this was a, a fantastic um, mental gymnastics, if you will, as you're going through and reading the book, you're trying to actually piece together what happened, when and where, and what the significance is. One, one thing that I did enjoy about the second book as opposed to the first, I felt like in the first book, you had a very clear sense of who is on the side of good and on the side of evil. And in book two, mainly through Caden's flashbacks, you begin to learn a lot more about the side of evil and or what we think is evil. And you kind of begin to learn that it's more of kind of gray area. You're not exactly sure what, what they're, um, you're not exactly sure who's in the right here. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that. So I agree with you to an extent. I think he does a really good job of setting up who's right and who's wrong and giving the, the villains a strong motivation and a belief for what they're doing. So I really like that. However, I don't love the way that he treats good and evil in some of the, in, in modern times. So with our characters like Davian and Weir, et cetera, um, I, I think of this book as one of the most complex books in terms of plot, but also in a lot of ways, it's incredibly simple. I don't like how he portrays all of the teenage characters as having these unbelievably strong morals. They are never tempted to do anything wrong and they're always telling the adults like oh no we can't kill that person because we could never take that step down that path or i can't control them using these magical abilities because that would just be that would be expedient rather than necessary is one of the phrases and i like the idea but i don't like that our local teenagers have this all figured out and it seems like all of the adult characters are all these ambiguous gray characters but but the young kids have everything figured out. Yeah, to be honest, I kind of got a Harry, Ron, and Hermione feel from Davian, Weir, and Asha. Yeah, I completely agree. Another thing that I'll put in the same category of simple but complex is the magic system. I think the magic is really cool. He has the two different types of magic. They play off of each other. But it's also a pretty soft system because none of the magic, you, you don't really get a sense of how it would actually work, like a Sanderson or Patrick Rothfuss type magic. It's more just like they use essence to do something or they're using con to do something. And he describes it in a cool way, but it's not like a magic that I feel like I could go out and do like some of these other magics are. Yeah, it is sort of uh, a bit more vague. They just kind of say, I used magic to do this action rather than a more hard magic system saying exactly how they manipulated it and having very defined rules of that they perform this magic. Which is fine. It, it, not every magic system needs to be a hard system, but I thought it was a little interesting that it was so defined in terms of the augurs and the gifted and the es essence and con, but then it was kind of when they actually went to use the magic as more of a hand wave type thing. Yeah, I agree with that. So that said, let's give this book a content rating. As far as content goes, I would say this is still aligned with The Shadow of What Was Lost. There is some violence. There is, I still don't think there's any swearing at all other than in-book swears. And, and when I say that, I mean like in-world swears. So they say fates a lot, for example, which seems to be a, a curse in the world of an echo of things to come, but not so much here. Um, and then as sexual content, none. Anything I'm missing here? Um, there might be some passionate kissing. Oh, yes. Yes, there is some passionate kissing. So watch for that. Very exciting. And then I also wanted to mention the length of the book for listeners. So offhand, I don't know how many pages this is. I'm going to guess it's like 750-ish. And if you're listening to the audiobook, I think it's like a 26, 27-hour long book. So it's fairly long. It's a little bit longer than the first book, but not much. And then I noticed the third book, which just came out a few days ago, builds on that a, a little bit a uh, little bit longer too. So I think that's like a 30-hour book. Okay, so all of that said, let's jump into the spoilers. So I thought what we could do is in the podcast that Thomas and I did on A Shadow of What Was Lost, we had a lot of questions from the plot where we weren't sure what the significance of things were or exactly what happened in, in some cases. So I marked a few of these things down. 
So let's just go, kind of go through trivia format. Let me ask you, Ryan, some of these questions that Thomas and I had and see if you know the answer because the answer to these questions was in an echo of things to come. So first of all, how did the Unseen War Rebellion, this is the rebellion that happens before the events of A Shadow of What Was Lost, how did that rebellion actually happen? Well, it started, I think, with Elosian, Duke Elosian, Weir's father, and uh, the king, which I, I'm blanking on his name. Is it Kevlin? Kevrin. I think it's Kevrin. Kev- Kevrin. Okay. So they were contacted by this mysterious woman who started pointing out various crimes committed by the gifted against normal uh, citizens of Andara and overwhelming evidence of their occurrence and later meeting them in person to to start to provide some of the groundwork for the rebellion, including how the gifted could be defeated ultimately. And later it's revealed that kind of the leader of the augurs, a man by the name of Jacarus, is one of the is the main instigator of this. And as Elosian and Kevrin start to see the um, that the gifted can be defeated, they start to gain confidence and they gain the tools from Jacarus and the woman who we later learn to be Nethgola. We we they gain the tools to overcome the gifted using the shackles and the traps and the vessel which is which helps them create the tenants. Right. And Nethgola is doing this ultimately because she is trying to help Talkamar, right? Like she believes this is her part to play in Talkamar's plan. Yeah, and I I think she she is helping to create shadows for the siphon so that they can use the siphon to power the Ilshara, which I think is Talkamar's plan. He he's planning to to use the siphon and enter the tributary to power the Elshar, preventing the other members of the Venerate and L from escaping. Right, right. Nicely, nicely summed up there. Okay, one for one. So next question, what are the origins of the Shateth? You learn that Tairus and Layman Kardai are behind the creation of the Shateth. And the way they come upon the knowledge of how to make them is because Terus is chosen as a memory proxy, I believe it's called, by Jacarus. And this is a way in which the augurs would distill their memories throughout uh, several people so that if they, if they die, that they can pass on the memories. And so Terus and Laman Cardi get this forbidden knowledge on how to create the Shateth and they gain some volunteers from the council, uh, people who are actually, I think, some of the better gifted who volunteer, um, who volunteer to become Shateth, thinking that they will remain themselves. But in the process of creating the Shateth, basically you use a human as a host and a creature from the Darklands comes into the human and they basically tell the creature, if you stay here, then you have to obey us. And if the creature agrees, then it stays in the host and it gains the, the human becomes the Shateth and they get a lot of powers, like I think manipulating Khan as well as Essence. And unfortunately, they didn't realize that it would no longer be, be a human. The human is no longer in control. Yeah, I think you summed that up better than I could have. We see this a little bit when... Asha goes, I don't remember the name of the Shateth that she kills underneath um, underneath Alinalan, but there is a sequence where the Shateth and the human are kind of like flashing back and forth into control as the Shateth is dying. Okay, why don't you ask me a couple? All right, well, how about you tell us a little bit more about Brashada's backstory? Yeah, so Thompson and I could not remember, or I guess at the time we didn't really know about Brashada's backstory, but... Brashada was, in fact, Nethgola the whole time. So she's posing as a hunter, helping Davian and Weir in the beginning of the first book. But she's actually Nethgola. That's why she has the sword whisper. So correct me if I'm wrong. She, she wasn't always Brashada. Wasn't Brashada given 
Whisper by Tal Kamar. It's kind of, he appeared to her kind of like a god-like figure. I'm actually not sure. I'm, that's what she says, but I thought that Nethgola said she had taken Brashada's form since before any of them met her. Okay. Not sure on that one. I'm not sure if she said that. I'm not sure if she was lying when she said that or if she killed Brashada after Talkamar appeared to Brashada. Hmm. Not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly when Nethgola took over Brashada, if she had already established her as herself as a hunter with Whisper at that point, or if Brashada was just making that up to as an excuse. I guess she's dead anyway, so doesn't matter. Brashada is not Nethgola. Brashada, right. All right, so the next, I guess this ties into the last question, who is the Shadrahin? The Shadrahin is also Nethgola. So Asha sees her briefly in the first book, and then in the second book, when Brashada transforms back into, well, Brashada transforms into her Shadrahin form, Asha is taken aback and realizes that, oh, you were the Shadrahin the whole time, yet you're also this shapeshifter. And this is happening in Dylanus right before Asha, right before Nethgola tricks Asha into stabbing her with the, with Whisper, which transfers over the siphon's power to her, which then uh, starts the chain of events that ultimately has her entering the tributary with the power of the Lith and the Shadows. Right. And it's important to note that Siner was posing as the Shadrahin. I guess that was book one where he was posing and we learned that the Shadrahin is actually um, a woman. Right, because Davian comes and tells, Davian comes back and tells Asha to tell the Shadrahin that Talcomar right. is taking Lycanius to the wells. So this is Dave, future Davian that we haven't seen yet. We're going to see this in book three, I'm sure. So he comes back and tells Asha, hey, you need to tell the Shadrahin, which he knows is Nethgola, tell Nethgola that Talcomar is taking Lycanius to the wells. And that's how Nethgola knew to appear in the wells and steal Lycanius and kill Asar. Which is interesting that now that I'm thinking about it, I think this implies that maybe Asar's death was necessary. Right. Somehow Davian knew that that needed to happen in, in order to get to what we're hoping is ultimately a happy ending. Okay. Because when initially Asar was killed, I was kind of sad. I was thinking, here's this member of the venerate who says that I, I remember him saying that none of the vener other members of the venerate who are still alive are as strong as asar and then suddenly nethgala comes and kills him it was a little bit sad i was just thinking that hopefully this guy was going to help Caden take on the other members of the venerate right so we don't know if davian was saying okay this is what happened in the past therefore i need to make sure that i set in place the trigger that's going to make it happen. Time travel's a little murky, right? You have the butterfly effect. And so I, it'll be interesting, interesting to see how this all ends. Okay, uh, a couple more questions here. So Ryan, who did Davian transform into in The Shadow of What Was Lost? I don't believe that has been revealed yet. There are a few theories that people have, but it, I don't think it's revealed in book two of the Lycanius trilogy. I think the biggest question that I have about that is if you need to kill somebody in order to, like you have to physically kill somebody yourself in order to shapeshift into them, or does that person just need to be dead? Because if, if it's the first, then it would mean it would have to be somebody that Davian had already killed, like one of, uh, like one of the people who, one of those three people who was originally beating up Davian to the point where he controlled them made them kill themselves but if it's just somebody who had to be dead then it could be any number of people right and then if it's someone that you've killed could it be someone that you kill in the future because we know davian is time traveling around everywhere so it could be someone that he's going to kill in the time in between books two and three basically yeah and that that could be the case too and malshash seems fairly surprised by the person who Davian transforms into, though that's not clear whether it's him, whether it's Malshash reacting to the person that Davian transforms into, or just the fact that Davian has been able to take on shape-shifting so quickly. 
Right. So we're thinking this is significant. I hope it is because we've definitely talked about this enough to, it, to mean it would be a major disappointment if it's just hand waved away. So we will see in book three. Okay. Next question. What is Dizia's brother's name? This is an easy question, but Thomas and I couldn't come up with. Aelric? Yeah, Aelric. And couldn't still, spell that. Uh, no, I couldn't spell that. Maybe A-E-L-R-I-C, I'm guessing. I can't spell Dizia either. But uh, <laughs> honestly, I'm not really sure what the significance of these two characters are. It seems like Dizia was introduced to be a love interest for Weir because all of the main characters need love interests. And Aelric is just her brother I, I don't know hopefully they do something in book three but they were really pretty pointless in the yeah they were just kind of added in there i think although uh, although elric you know there is kind of the mystery towards the end where elric disappears and it learns that we learn that he went he's in contact with his creditors for song of swords tournament is that the name of the tournament correct song of swords so that'll potentially play out hopefully have an effect in book three hopefully and i'd like to see him do something otherwise these guys are just total waste of time Itzia is just a heartthrob for weir yeah thus far that's all she's been okay ask me our final question who are the lists and what is their original purpose and what is the purpose of lycanius i think is actually what we meant there so the okay. lith, i hope i remember this correctly but the lith are the the survivors of Caden's attack on Dylanus. So Talcomar goes, this is one of his memories, one of his more recent memories, goes to stop the Lith from, or stop the Dylanus people from using the Javet, which will take them back in time because he thinks using that will allow Shemeloth to enter the world. So he goes to stop them. They put on the shackles that they've created to use the Javet, but apparently they just miscalculated how the thing was to work or it, it broke in some way. And in doing this, they transform themselves into creatures of pure essence. This is one of the cases with the magic where it's just kind of like hand waved away. Oh, they used the shackles and it was wrong and therefore they turned into essence beings. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it's magic so you can do whatever you want. So they turn into these, these creatures that could not survive in our world because they didn't really have a, a corporeal body. So Caden takes them into Restkartha, which I'm not really where this is. It's like another dimension almost, but uh, he, he puts them there. They can survive there and he feels really bad about it, but uh, doesn't really know what else to do with them. Now, years later, Andriel does something with them where he creates a a bargain with them. He gives them Lycanius and says, you can only give Lycanius to someone who doesn't, who's not here to, who's not here to take it, which is what puts into place Caden's, or, or what starts the chain of events that led, leads to Caden erasing his memories and going to eventually claim Lycanius. Now the purpose of Lycanius is to kill the Venerate. So the, the Venerate can't be killed in regular ways. Lycanius is a magical sword that can kill them. Talcumar thinks he needs to kill them all in order to finally close the rift and stop Khan from being used and prevent Shemeloth from escaping into our world. It, how did I do there? I think you did great. The only thing that I would add is that this was all kind of part of the plan. This is the whole reason why El instructed Talcumar to destroy Dorisia was so that the survivors would 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 leave Dorisia and build the Javet so that they could later use in in the L's instructions. It was so that they could use the Javet to break free of this of the fate that Shemeloth has trapped them in. And so this has all kind of been planned. Right. So this is what in, this is why Talcomar destroyed. Um, created the Plains of Decay, right? He destroyed their, the, the grandest city in the world and forced the, the Dorisians to come to Dylanus and then build the Javet. So um, yeah, th there's all these, there's, there's these centuries of chains of events that have happened that have led up to this. All right. I think you did great though. Thank you. Okay. So we answered our trivia questions. Now let, we're going to go through a recap. And get, so we, we talked about a lot of plot points there, but any plot points that we missed here 
let's touch on those, Ryan. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on stuff we just talked about, but instead of going through the plot uh, chronologically, let's just go through our four main characters, Davy and Weir, Asha and Caden, and talk about their their character arcs in the second book. The idea here is so uh, if you're listening and you need a refresher on the second book, this is going to help you out. So starting with Davian, Ryan, kind of take us through Davian's journey in book two. Well, book ends with book one ends with Davian deciding to fulfill the bargain he has with Ishel, in which he says if she comes and helps out with the siege, he will go with her to Tolshen. So he leaves to Tolshen where his, he begins training with Ishel and his they are not treated very well by the the council at Tolshen and along comes another auger who they find named Rowan and suddenly everybody's really excited to see him and they're treating him great which is a little bit suspicious to Davian and then he he meets Rowan and Rowan it turns out has an the auger talent which is the opposite of Davian's where Davian can detect lies basically Rowan can tell lies that become truth so and by doing this he controls people so he he controls all of Tolshen including Ishel and uh, Davian escapes because his talent counteracts Rowan's with the help of Bessie and Aaron and later Driskin the uh, the former member of the Signari who was training Ishel, they break into this vault at Tolshen, which holds the vessels. They recover this special amulet and they place it onto Rowan, which basically neutralizes him. It puts him in, I think, a, a lot of pain. It neutralizes him, and Davian leaves with Fessy and Aaron and Ishel to head up north to the boundary they leave Rowan with Driskin and they go up to the boundary Ishel almost gets killed by a bane called an Elotai but Davian does sort of what Talcomar tried to do to heal his wife where he takes in all the essence around him and channels it into her Davian does that with Ishel and is actually able to save her they later study the boundary find a doorway through and Davian Fessy or sorry, they realize they're up at sort of this outpost observing the boundary and they realize Ishel has gone missing. She's kind of been acting a little suspicious. They see her pass through the boundary. And so Davian and Ishel, or Davian and Fessy go after Ishel and they find her and she's kind of disoriented. She doesn't really know how she got there. And then they see that the gate, which they passed through the boundary has closed. And so they can no longer go back. So now Shell knows that they need to head in a different direction. They're not sure how she knows. It comes, it comes down to the fact that Shell is sort of being controlled by the Elatai, which are a hive mind type thing. And they break her out of it. Shell uses this telestasia, the black armor that the blind use. She uses it to get through the boundary while it's weak. And Davian and Fessy are later trapped on the wrong side of the boundary, captured by, they're not really the blind, they're, they're sort of like the arm, they're wearing telestasia, they're the armies of the Venerate, they capture them, think they're runners, and bring them back to this, the fortress, I don't remember its name, and Fessy freaks out, she runs away from Davian, Davian uses a distraction to run, where he later finds Caden, um, being tortured, and he sets Caden free by chopping off his head and also kills a member of the Venerate with Lycanius in the process. Nicely done. I think Davian has the most action going on in this book. So, yes, there's quite a lot there. Um, yeah. So, a few things. So, I think, the, I think the name of the fortress was, like, it's like Ilshan del Teth or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I just kind of think of it as, like, the Venerate homeland. It's, it's kind of evil. And yeah. you also skipped over the exciting romantic part with Asha. They have their night of passionate kissing. Very corny. Can I just say that 
as much uh, as much of the books that I like, I don't really like any of the romance in the books. Mainly because Davian and Asha are kind of the central romance between two characters. And really the only times they've interacted in these books are at the very beginning of book one. And then I think the beginning of book two and maybe briefly at the end of book one, there's very few encounters between them. And so it doesn't really justify, in my mind, the the feelings they have for each other. Yeah, they're always kind of pining after each other, but you don't really see them actually having much chemistry on camera. And we also do see that Shell appears to have feelings for Davian, but he's he just brushes her off because of his love for Asha. Yeah, Shell's actually pretty cool. So yeah, I don't know. Davian must be a really attractive guy. Um, another thing, so I really like the part with Rowan because you actually got to see how some of the magic worked. There were a couple parts where um, there were some unique uses of Khan and Essence. I thought that was really cool. We see some stuff with Davian. Where, so Davian doesn't have a reserve because he's died, but he's able to store a Khan-covered ball of essence like inside of him, it's described, in order to keep him alive. It's said a few times that this isn't sp- supposed to be possible, so I kind of wonder if that will be significant later on. But the, yeah, the parts with Rowan were really cool. And that, yeah, that's, that's about what happened with Davian. Nice recap. So I will go into Weir. I think these, the rest of the characters should be a little quicker because they don't have nearly as much detail or, or significance to what they're doing. So Weir starts off, he, he is set up with um, another young woman from a noble family because they're trying to, of course, have him married off. And he's supposed to be courting these, the, the favor of other houses. In the midst of this happening, there's an assassination attempt. The assassination attempt is instigated by, well, it's stopped by Siner. So Siner has been watching Weir. He stops the, I think the assassins were, actually, Ryan, do we even know what the assass- where the assassins were from? No, not in, it's not revealed in book two. Okay. I, it's kind of hinted, or you're supposed to think it's just from some other noble family that doesn't like Weir assuming the North Warden mantle. But uh, that's about as much as we know from this book. So the assassination attempt is stopped in order to, uh, in order to secure his safety. He leaves in a little lawn for a while and goes to like the old family residence out in the countryside where his mom has been hiding out. His mother is very, she's very antagonistic because of Weir's dual nature as North Warden, but also gifted essence user. And at the same time, he, this is where he comes across Brashada. So this is where Brashada, who is now definitely Nathgola, meets up with the rest of our characters. He finds his father's old notebook and starts to learn about the rebellion. So learns a lot of the details that Ryan supplied earlier. And then he goes back to Alinalon with Brashada in tow. Brashada is claiming that now she can channel, although previously she was a hunter that killed people that can channel. We learn this is all just part of Nethgola's plot. When he gets back to Alinalon, Isiliar, who is one of the venerate that has gotten out of the tributary, she's been trapped in the tributary for 2,000 years, powering the Ilshara, which is the boundary. Do we actually know how she got out, Ryan, or is she just out? I was trying to remember. What I thought had happened is that she just eventually breaks out, but I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe we'll get more on that in book three, although she dies in book two, so she might be done, but I'm not really sure how she got out. So she's out, she attacks Alinalon. This is kind of a fun scene because she's just rampaging and destroying a bunch of the castle. But uh, he is eventually able to, Weir is able to stop the attack using, using the power of one of the oath stones that he has discovered in his father's old things. This is going to continue to be significant because Weir has discovered that using the Oath Stone as a gifted and also the, I think the holder of the tenants is the reason why he can do this. He can command other people to do things and they have to obey. I think it's only those who are bound by the tenants, right? Only the gifted or administrators. I'm going to say that's correct, but we might see more of that in book three. Um, Now towards the end of the book, his mother tries to basically impeach him as North Warden because he's becoming more and more unpopular as a gifted and the North Warden. So he, people are questioning his ability to play both sides here. 
eventually he goes to the boundary with his mother in order to say, hey, look, there's a significant threat here to the boundary. We, we need to stop messing around here. He's involved in the, the action at the boundary a little bit, more so on the side of uh, once the Banes start to get through the boundary, they're attacking and he fights a little bit. They kill a bunch of the Elatai, but they don't, they don't realize that the Elatai are actually coming back to life. After they kill them, they're basically zombies. So before they can burn all the bodies, his mother is killed. One thing towards the end here that's significant is after they suppress the first Elatai attack, they're kind of sitting around thinking, phew, you know, we, we survived. And then Caroline says, hey, we need to burn the bodies. And, it's, and we're not really sure why she's doing this. And a lot of people on Reddit are thinking this is a hint that Caroline is actually Nethgola as well. I really hope she's not, because that would just be really tragic for Caden to once again have Nethgola be inhabiting the woman he's loving. But that's one hint that kind of makes me think that she... Anything I missed there for Weir, Ryan? No, I think you, I think you got it. All right, take us through Asha. So Asha's mentor was killed at the end of book one, and he's replaced by Terus. And Asha has been using the, this vessel called the Veil, I believe, to make herself invisible. And then she goes and explores down uh, around the sanctuary where the shadows used to be but are now gone. And while there, she, over, she overhears some people talking who turn out to be Asiliar and this uh, one of the Shateth and this small little boy that's kind of... Unnat- it's not really a human anymore. It's an echo. And so she follows Asiliar and the Shateth leave. And so she follows this little boy as he walks the caverns that nobody really knows how to navigate. And the little boy leads her to another place where Asiliar and the Shateth are discussing. And later, the Asiliar kind of turns on the Shateth and deals him a fatal blow and says, you only have an hour uh, in order to let me into your mind so that I can make sure that you aren't betraying us. And the Shateth says, no, that'll let too much of the meld into you. We don't really know what the meld is, but Asiliar leaves intending to come back. And while she's gone, the Shateth kind of becomes human again. The features become more human. And he speaks to Asha and says to, I think, take the, the sword and hide it and leave. I forget what else What else he reveals to her. Am I missing something? There might be some other details, but nothing that seems to be too significant yet. And Okay, and so after she has this interaction with him, she somehow, she kills him with the sword knowing, which is what he wanted her to do, so that he didn't, um, he didn't give in to Asiliar and give her any more knowledge than that he wanted to keep from her. And so after he, after Asha kills him with a sword, she realizes that she knows her way back through these, these caverns back to the sanctuary. And after she's, after she returns, they decide to mount an expedition to Dylanus again for, so that they can get some more information, which might be useful in the fight. And so they go to Dylanus. While there, she is reading about this, this story in the past about how this person who wasn't gifted miraculously becomes gifted and then becomes more and more powerful. And then more and more people start becoming shadows in this city. And it turns out this, this guy is using, he's turning people into shadows so that and then he can gain access to their magical abilities. And he is later defeated by the venerate Wirath. But this gives Asha the clue that she needs to learn that the shadow's power is being siphoned into one person. And later we see Caden appears in this library with um, Nethgola also shows up. And she gives the siphon to Caden. And Caden disappears with a siphon. Oh, and I'm missing the, fa- the fact that she goads Asha into stabbing her with the Sword Whisper, which then transfers the reserve of all of the shadows from Nethgola into Asha, so that Asha has to go to this island and go into a tributary to use 
the power of all of the shadows and also all of the lith, which are bound up in the siphon, to strengthen the Ilshara, the boundary. Nice. So it ends with Asha, well, Asha's plotline in this book at least ends with her entering the tributary, which is pretty a pretty noble sacrifice for her to say, I'm going to jump into this box that's going to stab me and be painful for who knows how long. Nice going, Asha. Yeah, it's definitely a noble sacrifice from her, especially because she does it knowing that she's going to lock Davian on the other side of the boundary. She she knows that he's going to survive for a few more years at least because of the visit from his future self, but she still doesn't know if she's locking him on that side to be tortured by the venerate or who knows what. Right. Okay, I'll go through Caden's part really quick. So Caden is starting to get his memories back with Asar at the beginning of the book. Uh, like we said, Nathgola comes, kills Asar. Asar is his other venerate buddy. And so all of the, uh, his memories are not restored as he was planning on them being. He just continues to follow his portal box at this point because it's transporting him to different places. He set this up before he lost his memories. So once he, he goes to the next location, he wakes up Meldir, who is another one of the venerate, and he gets some more memories back. He chats with Meldir for, Meldir for a while. And as he meets these venerates, especially Meldir, Isiliar, and Alaris, yeah, they're all trying to convince him to turn around and, and you know come back to them. Um, but he's more and more convinced that he's in fact right. And L, the L that they believe in is false and is actually Shemeloth. So after chatting with Meldir for a while, he is attacked by Asiliar in a new location. Alaris comes and stops that attack. He shoots off again and goes back to Alunalan, meets up with Caroline for a while. They have their nice little romantic moment. Then he goes to Dylanus, gets the siphon from Nethgola and takes that and frees the Lith. So he says, I'm going to use this, the siphon to bind you to Asha, basically. This, this doesn't allow them to get their, their gifted essence powers back, so the Lith are not pleased with this outcome, but it does ultimately fulfill the, the language of their bargain. So it works well enough. And then towards the end of the book, he travels north to confront the Venerate again, so beyond the... Uh, beyond the boundary. He fights the Venerate. This is in this Ilshan del Teth place. I think I'm saying that right. And he kills Asiliar and, well, he doesn't kill Meldir. Davin, Davian eventually kills Meldir with Lycanius. So both of those guys are off the table. But he is captured. He's, he's tortured. He gives up some information. And ultimately, he just tells Davian to behead him with a normal sword so he can escape. At the end of the book, he wakes up in a new body he shapes it back to his old body that he liked as Caden, but he has one final tragic memory where he remembers that Davian appeared to him and started put him down the path to discover that El was false and was actually Shemeloth. But when Davian did this, he angered Talcomar so much that Talcomar cut off his head and put it on a pike in Dylanus, which is very interesting because you see that twice in the first book, one in the prologue, where he talks about killing someone and putting their head on the pike. We know that's Davian's head. And when they're actually in Dylanus in the first book, they see a skull on a pike and Davian sees it and has this bad sense of foreboding because it's his head. So this was kind of a cool part. This is really, things like this are the real payoff of the book for me. Uh, some of my favorite parts. Yeah, and I think it's, a good example of time travel done right up to this point it's not it, he reveals these things that have happened in Talcumar's past but Davian's future and you just wonder how on earth is this gonna happen so as we're chatting here I'm realizing there are way too many details in this book to succinctly get through I was planning on going through this reddit post on a on a timeline but I don't think we have time to do that. And I don't think listeners want to listen to more details. But I guess suffice it to say, go ahead and look up. We'll put the link to this Reddit uh, post with a, with a visual timeline of what happened in the past. Real high level, thousands of years ago, Talcomar 
meets up with a bunch of the other venerate. The venerate can all are all immortal. They go about doing good for a while. Eventually, L has them do more and more questionable things. The venerate split up after Talkmar creates the planes of decay, which we talked about earlier. And this kind of puts into motion the events where Talcomar and Andriel and I think maybe one or two more venerate realize that they've really been fighting for the wrong side. They put up the boundary and we don't know too many details that are closer to present day, but this basically takes us up to the action. Any other details there that I missed? Let's not spend too much time on any. No, just that Caden Talcomar's choice to destroy the Dorisia, the capital of Dorisia, which I think is called Dorisia. Um, his decision to destroy that, he says, he tells the other venerate that he was told by L, and then some people leave him and some people don't, and that kind of splits the venerate. And ultimately, Andriel, this kind of leads Andriel on the path to investigate if L is who he says he is. And then a quick roundup of the venerates. So we have Talcamar, obviously our, our main man, Caden. Gassandrid. Gassandrid is one of the venerates that he meets really early on, who seems to be firmly on the side of Shemeloth. I'm kind of wondering if he's actually, like how far, in, how, how influenced is he by Shemeloth? He almost seems like his right-hand man. Alaris, we know from book one, there was this fable of Alaris. He was a legendary king of the Shining Lands who had a bit of a falling out and is kind of a broken man now. He's also serving Shemeloth pretty strongly. Andriel, I would like to get more details on him. We know he created the swords and we know that he was the first one to doubt El and that's why he was creating these swords to kill the Venerate. Wherith, we know almost nothing about other than he's always associated with the Shadow Breakers and like Ryan said, he was the one who thousands of years ago stopped this guy who was creating shadows originally. Tysis, I think we know like nothing about. We've just heard the name every now and then. Asar, well, we've obviously seen him. He's dead now. Meldir, also dead. Asiliar, also dead. Diara, I think was killed back when they were fighting, kind of in the, in the times where they were doing good. She was killed by one of, I think this was by one of um, Andriel's swords, or maybe she was just killed in, a, in such a way that they said she would not be coming back. And Seer, we also know like nothing about. So that takes us to the better. Yeah. I mean, Diara, she did die, but it wasn't, I don't think, a final death uh, for her. She's still alive. And we know that Seer is, he is also, he's in tributary helping power the Elshara. He's somewhere in the south. Okay, so we're going to see him at some point in the third book, and possibly Diara. Although I'm confused on Diara because I thought they said that she would not be returning through the chamber. Hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure she's in book three. Ooh, okay. Ryan's read more of book three than I have. She, uh, either that or it's some other member of the Venerate whose name starts with a D, but I think it's Diara. Okay, so I guess we'll look for her in book three. Okay, so let's just kind of wrap up here. Um, I know that we, sounds like from that comment, Ryan's read a little more of book three, so we'll ask him not to add any spoilers here. So let's say, what are some things we're looking for in book three, The Light of All That Falls? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Davian's origins. Um, we know that Terus is keeping some things from Davian about his past, but where did he come from? How did he die? We know that at some point he died. Um, why did he sacrifice himself to Talcomar, our kind of aid, at the end of book two? What was he trying to accomplish with that, I guess? Ultimately, I think it's really just his, we know very little about his origins. Definitely, yeah. I, and I'm sure we'll get this, right? There's no way the books can end without an explanation of Davian. There's a lot of theories on Reddit. I've seen some good ones. A lot of it revolves around his time travel. Maybe that's come back, although why is he not recognized by anyone else? There's a lot of questions here. I'm really hoping Islington, Islington wraps this up nicely. One of the things that I'm kind of curious about is, so we know that the Banes break through at the end of book two, at least some of them do. What are they even really trying to accomplish here? Like, are they just going to 
rampage through the countryside, get to Dylanus and tear apart the rift. We know the rift is ultimately Shamela's goal, but how, what is Shamela's strategy to get there? And how are the Banes involved? What is the purpose of the creation of these creatures? Are they just there to take out a bunch of the humans? Another question that I want answered, the amulet that Siner, we learn at the end of book two that Siner kills Rowan and takes the amulet from him. In fact, that was the whole point of Siner sending Rowan to Tol Shen. What does that amulet do? Why does Siner want it? I want to know that. Yeah, I'd kind of forgot about that. I guess we can assume that if Siner wants it, it's part of Nethgola's plan. And if it's Nethgola's plan, then it must be something that Talcomar is going to benefit from. So I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that the amulet will come to help our heroes, ultimately. Yeah, Nethgola usually, I mean, I feel like she only wants to help out herself and Talcomar. So maybe at some point it will help out Talcomar or herself, but I doubt it. She intends for it to help out Davian or Weir or Asha. So we'll watch for the amulet. Another thing, another magical object that we're interested in is Lycanius. How did, we don't really know the recent history of Lycanius. Talcomar has it, he kills Davian with it, but then he doesn't have it at the beginning of the present day. So something happened there and some bargain was made with Andriel and the Lith. So what's going on here? Why is it all that? And I mean, we know it's important because it's going to kill the Venerate but what is the point of the bargain? Like if the bargain wasn't fulfilled and the Lith got, got Lycanius back, why would that have been so bad? Because they were trapped in Rescartha anyway. So what would have happened? Then? Um, the last question I probably have about this book is the end of, at the end of book two, Fessy panics when they enter the Venerate city. Um, I, like I said, I don't really remember what it's called and she says i can't be here and she leaves davian behind and runs away we don't really know why she can't be there it's probably related to some sort of vision that she saw um and so we don't really know what happens to her in our previous podcast thomas brought up fessy's vision of her death i'm thinking that she has seen the city before and she's seen it in the vision where she dies so that's why she's running away that's my theory on this one but we'll see. That's pretty much the main things that I'm looking forward to finding out besides more of Caden's backstory as well. Right. So, and there, there's other, there's, there's lots of questions in this book, but I think that takes us through a lot of the, the points that we'd at least talked about together. And that concludes our recap of the echo of things to come book two of the Lycanius trilogy book three came out five or six days ago. It sounds like Ryan has made quite a bit of progress already. I've only gone through the prologue, so anything I say is not going to have any major spoilers in it, but who knows? Maybe Ryan was hinting at some things that, that have happened already. But The Light of All That Falls, book three of the Lycanius trilogy by James Islington, Islington, fantastic read. We're going to get through it quickly, as quickly as we can, and review it for you. So thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll see you later. Thank you.